Lord God, Heavenly Father, on this day of transfiguration, we rejoice that your Son stands as a fulfillment of all the Scriptures, that in Him we know that we have your Chosen One, the One in whom you delight. So teach us to delight also in Him, that we might trust in Him to be the One that reveals to us who you truly are, that we might trust in Him to be the One that forgives our sins, that we might trust in Him to be the One that gives us eternal life. And we look forward to his return when he will stand again, not on the Mount of Transfiguration, but in glory before the whole world. And he will welcome us into an everlasting kingdom of glory with you. So be with us now as we study this word of John. May these words written so long ago point us once again to our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Okay, so John 1, verses 19 through 28. Let's just read it so we don't skip that part. Let someone read it for us, please. John 1, verses 19 through 28. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so just a quick review. Um, this is the testimony of John. Which John is this? This is John the baptizing John, right? This is not the author of the gospel, right? Remember that. So there's a, there are several Johns running around in the New Testament, um, but John the Baptist or John the baptizing John is kind of the earliest one, and then the John who wrote the gospel is John, the brother of James, who we met today in the story of the Transfiguration, right? Peter, James, and John. That John from the Transfiguration is the guy who wrote the gospel. Okay? Which is kind of cool. So the, the writer of this gospel was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, the weird thing is that the Transfiguration doesn't appear in this gospel. There's no Transfiguration. Because the entire gospel is a revelation of Christ in his glory. Right? It's the entire thing is kind of a transfiguration gospel. Okay, so number one, why did God send John? John the Baptist. Why? As a prelude to Jesus. Good. Okay. So he, he's before. He's before Jesus. Why else? Why did God send John? To prepare the way, okay? To prepare. Good, good. To prepare whose way? The Savior's way. What does it say? Prepare, or he says here, make straight, which is a different translation. So, make straight the way of the, the Lord. Whose way? 
Yahweh. He's preparing the way for Yahweh. Well, what's interesting is the guy that comes after John is Jesus. So if he's preparing the way for Yahweh, and then Jesus shows up and he says, I was preparing the way for that guy, who does John the Baptist think Jesus is? Yahweh. Okay? So right away, even in the person of John the Baptist, we learn that the New Testament is under the impression that Jesus is actually Yahweh. So the entire God of the Old Testament, right? The God of the entire Old Testament is the person Jesus. This is not new in the Gospel of John. Remember when we talked about the prologue, we talked about how John writes the prologue in such a way that we are to go back and reread the entire Old Testament and every time you see God show up, you should think in your head, that's Jesus. Okay? So, even in the person of John the Baptist, we learn that, that John was sent to prepare the way of, of Yahweh, and Yahweh comes in the person of Jesus. But you're not quite there yet. Why did God send John? Well, isn't he also preparing the people because he's calling them to repent and be baptized? Yeah, he's also preparing Israel for their good. So he's also preparing the way, he's preparing Israel for their Messiah, right? You guys are all stuck in synoptic gospel world, which is fine, but that's not the right answer for John. Why did God send John? Here's a hint. If you have a question in John, look back in the gospel somewhere. He always answers his own questions. So, go back to chapter 1, verse 6. Oh, look. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness. Okay? So, in all this stuff, these are all right, but specifically, he comes as a witness. Okay? Now, the goofy thing is, when, when English translators are not friendly to you all, they translate Greek words differently within the same chapter, which is really annoying because the Greek word in John 1.6 is the same Greek word as in 1.19 and here they translate it as testimony and there they translate it as witness. So it makes no sense. It's the same word. So what John 1.6 says is he came to be a witness and in John 1.19 it says, so what did he do? He witnessed. Why? Because that's what God sent him to do. So is John being faithful or unfaithful? Faithful. Remember last week we talked about this, that one of the things the Gospel of John is going to teach us is who can you listen to to learn about who Jesus is? That's an important question because remember, the point of this Gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So, if believing who Jesus is is so important that you get life, you want to make sure you're believing the truth about Jesus. Because if you don't believe the truth about Jesus, you can't get life. 
This is a life and death situation. So you want to make sure you're believing the truth about Jesus. So the question is, if all these people are saying different things about Jesus, who do you believe? Do you believe the Jews? Do you believe the Pharisees and Sadducees? Do you believe the scribes? Do you believe Pilate? Do you believe John the Baptist? Right? He's somebody you can listen to. So when he says, after me comes one who is greater than I, he's telling the truth. You can listen to him. When he says, this is, the, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Can you believe that? So much so that before you receive the Lord's Supper, you're going to sing those words. Somebody walks into our church right before the Lord's Supper and they say, what's going on here? Why are we going up and, and eating and drinking this bread and wine? You say, oh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We believe on that altar is the Lamb of God. And why are we going up there? Because this Lamb of God takes away sins of the world. So don't go up there if you don't want your sins taken away. Because that's the transaction that's about to occur. Don't go up there thinking, I don't need Jesus or I don't have any sins. Uh Uh-uh. It's not for you. Because on that altar is the Lamb of God who takes away sins of the world. We sing it. That's the point of the liturgy, right? We are confessing what's going on here. With John, these are reliable words that you can trust in for your eternal life. That's part of what he's he's saying here. So in John 1, 6, God sent John to be a witness. In John 1, 19, John's saying, and he did it. He witnessed. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, and again, I want you to just, this is kind of showing you how to read John sometimes. Who did the Jews sin? Number two. The Jews sent priests and Levites. Do you see the sending? So God sends John. The Jews send priests and Levites. Okay, so we got God sending John, the religious authority, or the Jews, which is a huge issue in the Gospel of John. They also send somebody or somebodies. And the question is, can you trust the ones the Jews sent? And the answer is, they don't seem to have a clue what's going on, do they? They say to John, well, are you the Christ? And the reader's going, well, we already know he's not the... Why are you asking this? We know he's not the Christ. Have you not read the book? See, the Jews are not reliable witnesses. So throughout the gospel, when the leaders of the Jews show up, don't expect them to be telling you the truth about Jesus, which means don't believe them. They don't know the truth about Jesus. This will come to a head several times throughout the gospel. In John 5, the Jews are reading the Old Testament and Jesus says, you're going to the right place, but you don't know who I am, so you will never read those words properly. In John chapter 8, Jesus says to the Jews, you're acting according to your father's will because you want to kill me. And they're like, 
our fathers Abraham. And Jesus says, no, he's not. Your father is not Abraham. And your father is not Abraham's God because Abraham and his God agree with me. You want to kill me, which means you're opposed to Abraham and his God. Therefore, your God is a liar. Your father is a liar. As a matter of fact, your father is a father of lies. See, the Jews, because they reject Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, they are not on the side of faithful testimony. They are teaching lies. Do you see how it works? So this this hits us right away in the first verse of the narrative of the gospel is that we have to decide are we going to listen to John the Baptist or are we going to listen to the Jews? So now you've got to listen through the entire gospel to figure out who's right. Because the Jews killed Jesus. So who does God think is right? John the Baptist or the Jews? John the Baptist. And how do you know that? Yeah, but how do you know in the story of the gospel that John is telling the truth about Jesus and not the Jews? Yeah, but how do you know he's right? John knows who he is, but how do you know that John is right? What does God do to confirm John's testimony? Not in the Gospel of John, he doesn't. At the end of the Gospel, how do you know? The resurrection. That's right. Exactly right. And the whole Gospel says, you're going to know who Jesus is when he dies on the cross. They're like, yeah, okay. But the Jews do that, and the Romans do that. So maybe the Romans and the Jews are right about Jesus. Maybe he's somebody who should be killed. But God raises him from the dead. And what does Peter say? You guys have been in Acts with me, right? What does Peter say in the book of Acts? You killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. So if God raises up this Jesus from the dead and says, this is my son, listen to him. This is my chosen one. You might want to go to church and listen to that if you didn't get it the first time. This is my chosen one. How do you know? He looks like a dead, failed Messiah to me. Doesn't he? Stripped naked, beaten, criminal on a cross, shameful death. On the third day, lifted up, right? Raised up again. God saying, this is my chosen one. He was there on the cross as my chosen one, and now you all know it in the resurrection. Does that make sense? So you come back and you say, Jews are wrong, John is right. And through the Gospel of John, you're going to be asking the question, whenever there's a testimony, is it true or is it false? And what you'll learn is, all Old Testament testimony is always... Long. No, not, we're ta- not talking long gospel, we're talking true or false. Is, it, is the Old Testament true or false? True. true. So if the Jews are false, that means they are misunderstanding their own scripture. Because if you don't read the Bible as being about Jesus, you are not reading it according to the will of God. Right? 
So John is going to teach us how to read God's word. It's all about Jesus. So the witness that John gives is that all the arrows are always going to point to Jesus. That's his testimony. They come and they say, well, who are you? Are you the Christ? He goes, no, not me. That's not me. Right? So number three, how did John confess Jesus? Yeah, by saying who he isn't. This is really weird. He doesn't give these huge theological statements. He actually just denies being, by, he denies the mantle they want to put upon him. I mean, if you want to win friends and influence people, and the leadership comes to you and say, are you this great person, and you want your ministry to flourish, then the correct answer would be, yeah, <laughs> you bet I am. We'll have church even when it's snowing out. (laughs) So that's the temptation, right? It's the same temptation that Jesus faces in the wilderness in the Synoptic Gospels. If you are, just just show me your glory. Go ahead. Right? Make the stones become bread. Throw yourself in the temple. It's not going to hurt you. You can just show me your glory. And so John who's standing out there and he's so popular that the religious leaders of society come to him and they say, are you the Christ? That's pretty easy to deny. No, I'm not the Messiah. But then they say, are you Elijah? What's the correct answer? The correct answer is yes. From Jesus' own mouth. John is the Elijah who was yet to come. What does John say? What does John say? Nope. I'm not. What? You may not believe me in this, but this is true. It is not for John to put titles upon himself and claim glory for himself. That is whose job? That's God's job through Jesus. It is not for you to walk before God and say, I am forgiven. Whose job is that? That's Jesus' job. So you don't walk into church and say, in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you go, I'm a forgiven sinner. No, you don't. You walk into church, your pastor says, in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you say, I, a poor, miserable sinner. It's not your job to talk about how righteous you are. Your pastor then turns around and says, I'm not going to deny that's true about you, but there's a greater truth that you need to hear. It's his job to say you are forgiven, which means what's my job when I see you tomorrow to remind you who you are? It's not my job to walk around and talk about who I am. It's our job to talk to each other about who God says we are. So John doesn't stand and say, I'm Elijah, even though he actually is fulfilling the role of Elijah at this point. That's not his job. His job is to point to Jesus. If Jesus wants to say he's actually Elijah, fine, no problem. But John's job is not to talk about himself and say, look who I am. He only does that so he understand his role as a testimony about Jesus. Okay?
Does that make sense? And you will find this to be true in this gospel that John is always being deferential. He's always saying, "Eh, no, it's not about me. It's about him. Okay? So, um, it's number four. Who did John understand himself to be, though, even as he denies all this stuff? I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So, Isaiah 40, verse 3. Okay, let's go look at it real quick. Isaiah 40, verse 3. So Isaiah is a big old prophet in the Old Testament. He's past Psalms and Proverbs. So if you open your Bible kind of to the middle, you'll be somewhere around Psalms. Keep going toward the end. You'll get to Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Somebody read that out loud. The voice of one calling in the desert prepared the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for God. Okay, so this is... Um, we have lots of time. We're all friends. So in Isaiah, what happens is Isaiah 1 through 39 is basically the history of why um, Israel and Ju- Judah, eventually, are all going to be exiled. That's 1 through 39 of Isaiah. It's just kind of awfulness. And story of Hezekiah, which, yay, Hezekiah, but then, ooh, Hezekiah. Okay? Um, That's the story of Isaiah 1 through 39, generally. Isaiah 40 through 55 is a prophecy to the people who are in exile, saying to them, God has not left you. As a matter of fact, he's going to send a Messiah to save you. And that Messiah is going to be a suffering servant. Okay? That's the message Isaiah... 40 through 55. So 40 through 55 is written to a bunch of people who are outside of the promised land. They think their God is dead because the temple has been destroyed and the Babylonian gods seemingly have won. And Isaiah 40 to 55 is to say, don't be distracted by this. You are still my people and I will save you. You can trust my word and you will know that I am your God when the suffering servant delivers you. Right? So this culminates in Isaiah 53, which we will read on Good Friday. This is our Good Friday text about the crucifixion. That's in Isaiah 40 to 55. So when he quotes Isaiah 40, it's not just an isolated prophecy. This is actually the whole notion that this is the voice saying to God's people, the Messiah is coming and the Messiah will suffer to redeem the people of God. Do not believe the false gods around you. Do not be distracted by what looks like victory in this world because the deliverance of Yahweh is still coming and it will be the suffering servant who dies to redeem the people of God. And Isaiah 55 ends this way. My word will not return to me void, but will accomplish that for which I sent it forth. You can trust the word of God. Now, don't miss this. Jesus in the Gospel of John is the word of God who will not return to God void, but will accomplish that for which God has sent him forth. 
Okay, so in quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3, if you're, if you're reading this as a Jewish person, a person who knows the Old Testament, you're hearing the entire prophecy of Isaiah in your minds. And you're saying, John is claiming to be the one who makes these amazing promises to God's people that will be fulfilled for the salvation of God's people. Okay, that's what they're hearing. They're also hearing, go in your Bibles to Malachi, or if you're, if you're from the hill, Malachi, the Italian prophet, right? So if uh, it's the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And if you go to chapter 3, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament and probably the last book written of the Old Testament. If you just look at chronology. Um, depending on how you date this, we're 400 years before Christ or so. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi 3. Okay, Malachi verse three or chapter 3, verse 1. So I'm going to read that for us. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger to, of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, just a little preview. Read the verse again. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who is that? John the Baptist. We just heard that, right? And Yahweh whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. What happens in John chapter 2? Jesus cleanses the temple. Did you realize that in the other gospels, the cleansing of the temple happens during Holy Week at the end of the gospel? In John's gospel, the temple cleansing happens at the beginning of the gospel. Why? Because in Malachi chapter 3, I will send my messenger before you and suddenly Yahweh will come to his own temple. What happens in John chapter 2? Yahweh walks into his own temple. And he says, destroy this temple and I will build it up again in three days. And they're like, what? And, he, and, and then John says this, that nobody understood this until after his resurrection. And then the disciples realized that the temple he was talking about was the temple of his flesh. The temple of his flesh. Right? So Yahweh comes into his own temple, the temple of the very body of Christ. Go back to 114. The word became flesh. And what was the word we talked about? It's the same word as the Old Testament. It's tabernacle, right? So in the flesh of Jesus, now we have tabernacle and temple. Listen to this. John 14. I am going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. Where's the father's house? The temple. Where's the temple? The flesh and blood of Jesus. I am going to prepare a place for you in my father's house in the body of Christ are many, many mansions. If it weren't so, I wouldn't tell you I was going to go prepare a place for you. But if I do go prepare a place here, I will come back that you may be with me where I am. Where does he go? To prepare a place. On the cross. 
And so now the temple of God, the dwelling place of God is open for you. Where do you live this morning? In Christ, in his body, in the church. Where's your mansion? Here, in the church. Baptism. Lord's Supper. Hearing the word. These are your heavenly mansions. And this is who you're going to live with. Sorry. You better learn to like them now because they're your housemates. Even Gene? Especially Gene. Oh, okay. right. But see, that's, that's the point. This verse is not saying God's up in heaven building you a mansion and he's trying to figure out how many bathrooms you're going to need. No. This, the, in John 14, the promise is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's his body. You're going to live in the body of Christ and this is your heavenly mansion. Right? It doesn't look like a mansion right now. But just you wait. Because that same Jesus will come back in glory. And you will dwell with him forever and ever and ever in the heavenly places. Right? And then the church, look at Revelation. Look how the church is described in Revelation. It's awesome. It's beyond human description. See how it works? So this is the way John is going to help us read the Old Testament. We're going to learn to read the Old Testament where all these verses, like you know Malachi 3.1, who even knew that verse? Well, then you read it and you go, whoa. This little verse is the whole ministry of the New Testament. Isn't it? So go to Malachi 4, 5. See, this is why Jesus says that John is Elijah. Because what's the day of the Lord? What's the day of the Lord? Easter's part of it. When he returns is part of it. The day of the Lord began when Gabriel spoke into the ear of Mary the incarnation of our Lord. Right? That's the beginning of the great and awesome day of the Lord when he will come with judgment and with he will clear out his threshing floor. All these things happen, right? So the day of the Lord is the incarnation, perfect life, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming of Jesus. You're living in the day of the Lord. How long will that day of the Lord last? A thousand years. Right? How many thousand years have we been going through so far? We've got a couple of them down already. Now remember, a thousand, because a thousand is from Revelation chapter 20. That's where we get the number from. Also from 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. Okay, those are the other places to get it. Remember, a thousand, since my mom is here, we can do this easily. A thousand is a symbol. So I, I you know, I, I want to go out with my friends. And my mom says, before you leave, 
you gotta clean your room. And I go, seriously? She goes, look, I've told you a thousand times to clean your room. Nobody in this room thinks she told me 999 times before that, and this was a thousandth time, right? We all know that a thousand is a symbol, meaning tons, a lot. Oh wait, tons, that's another one. How much is a ton? 2,000 pounds. So if I say to you, oh, uh, I'm just tired. Could you carry this Bible? It weighs a ton. No one's like, no, wait a minute. Let's get a scale in here and see if it... No, everybody knows that when I say this weighs a ton or I have a ton of work to do, no one says, Al, you can't tell me you have a ton of work to do. You can't measure work in pounds. That's not what we mean. Everyone knows that a ton is a symbol. So when John says that this will last a thousand years, it's not a literal thousand years. It's a symbolic thousand years. It means the church dwelling in this day of the Lord, waiting for the culmination at the end of times, it's going to last a thousand years. What does that mean? It's going to be a long time. Which is why 1 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, His Son or His hand slowness to be. No, He's patient. Not wanting any to perish, but waiting all to come to repentance. So the day of the Lord waits again today. Why? Because more sinners are being called to repentance. And he will come at the exact right time. Just like he did the first time. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those who are also under the law. Well, guess what? At the exact right time, he will send his son again. This time not to redeem, but to judge. Does that make sense? So this is what, this is what John is getting us to read just in the testimony of John the Baptist. All of that and we've skipped a lot of it already. And these... Time's up. <laughs> I thought that was affirmation of the teaching. The heavenly choirs. Wasn't it? Okay, so number, number five. Why does John baptize? Wash away sin? Yeah, I wish. That's not what it says. I mean, that's what we think of, but that's not what it says. They say, if you're not the Christ nor Elijah the prophet, why are you baptizing? And what does he say? This is typical... New Testament question and answer. The answer never actually addresses the question. Right? <laughs> Why are you doing this? Well, I baptize with water and after me comes... And I'm going, well, that didn't answer why. I mean, that's nice, but I still don't know why you're baptizing. Right? And this is part of the weird thing is that even, even the way he answers questions, it's always just simply pointing us to Jesus. The baptism of John is pointing us to Jesus as the fulfillment 
of the salvation of God's people. When were the Old Testament people baptized? What's that? In the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. When they crossed into the promised land, they were baptized into the promised land. When it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, they were baptized in an ark. Here's the weird thing. That, those are the places the New Testament talks about baptism in the Old Testament as being fulfilled in the baptism in the New Testament. What's weird about those three places? The people that are saved are not getting wet. If you're going to use an Old Testament symbol of baptism, you at least find a way to get wet. But no, all of those instances are dry. Red, Red Sea, they cross. Not through swimming, but they walk on dry ground. When they probably in the promised land, the River Jordan is stopped, and they walk through on dry ground. Noah and the ark are the only people that aren't drowning in the water. But then for us, it's the exact opposite. We experience this Salvation, not through staying dry, but by being wet. Because the baptism of John, I baptize with water. Unlike the Red Sea, unlike the Jordan, unlike Noah's Ark, I baptize you with water. Why? Because baptism gets us to Jesus. Romans 6. You guys all know this because I say it all the time. Don't you know that all of you who are baptized were baptized into the death of Christ? And if you were joined with him in a death like his, then you will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Colossians, in, in this washing, you've put on Christ. Titus, it's the washing of rebirth for regeneration. Acts chapter 2. In this baptism, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of your sins. Matthew chapter 28. In this baptism, you're made disciples of Christ. And because you've been baptized into Christ and you learned from His Word, He will be with you always. See, this is what John the Baptist, his baptism is not a Christian baptism, but it's the baptism that points us ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christian baptism points us back to the death and resurrection of Jesus and says, now you have been washed into what Christ has done. Right? So every day you live where? You live in Jesus. Every day you're a forgiven sinner. Every day you are a citizen of heaven. Every day you can rejoice that you are a child of God. Every day. Why? Because you've been baptized into Christ. Pastor Sal, what did God say about Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved. No. This is my you are my chosen one. chosen one. So if you're baptized into Him, when God looks at you, what does He say about you? The same thing He says about Jesus. He looks at you and says, you are my... These quizzes make me nervous. I know. He just preached on it. He just preached on it for like 45 minutes or something. Right? But so when God looks at you, he sees you the same way he sees his son Jesus because you're also, also a child of God and Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. So what happens is God looks at you now in Christ and says, you are my 
Chosen. Chosen one. And you say, I'm a rotten sinner. And he goes, huh. Yeah, you're right. But in Christ, <laughs> sin's forgiven. You are my chosen one. You are my son. You are my daughter. Nothing can change that because Christ has accomplished it for you. And he's given it to you freely. And nobody gets to testify against that. Does that make sense? So this is the baptism. This is the way we see baptism in scripture. Is that baptism, is it a symbol? We should review this. Is baptism a symbol? Yes. Does baptism actually do something? Yes. Is the Lord's Supper a symbol? Yes. Is Jesus actually present in that symbol? Yes. See, we don't say it's not a symbol. Of course it's a symbol. But it's not an empty symbol. It's a symbol in which God's word actually says this happens. So when someone is baptized, do they actually get forgiveness of sins? Yes. Do they actually receive the Holy Spirit? Yes. It's the way that God gives us his grace. It's a means through which grace comes to us. That's why we call it a means of grace. Does that make sense? Okay, I got to go because I got to go to a <coughs> baptism. Yay. But I'm hoping they'll let me stand up and... Okay, so let's, let's pray. And um, these extra 10 minutes are free. You can do what you want with them. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we, we rejoice that in your word, we know the truth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We rejoice that you in your grace have baptized us into our Savior Jesus and we live in him each day. Teach us so to treasure our baptism that we trust that in your holy word you pronounce us to be your children and so we are. Lord, we ask you to be with all those who travel this day, keep them safe in this weather and bring us back together again around your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you all.